Hello and welcome to Shoot the Piano Player, a French New Wave podcast. I am, well, I'll be honest, I'm pretty overjoyed because no more Antonioni for the rest of the season. Not to say that, uh, first off, to say I'm glad I forced myself to engage with like something I really don't like and don't understand. And I can't say I like it or understand it, but I appreciate forcing myself this opportunity. But also, no, no more Antonioni, so that's cause for celebration in my mind. Oh yeah, and, yeah, Joel's here too. As, as long as we never do a, I'm, I'm trying to think of directors that I'm like, I just do not ever click with anything. Uh, the only one who's come to mind is Robert Rodriguez. Uh, like that might have like such a hard bounce off, and have given multiple attempts. You know, to the things that people like, like yeah. oh, you should watch it. You try this one. I'm like, oh no, for some reason, Robert Rodriguez is just he's isn't a, for me. And not this. Kind of, yeah, he's kind of sloppy and uses um, low budget as an excuse. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. You. I would never say that he was a bad filmmaker or anything like that. It's just literally incompatible with my programming. But hey, I'm Joel, and I happen to be somebody who is now thinking he is an Antonioni stan. So, you know, you're in good company. You got Jack Nicholson. No, what you said? I was in good company. <laughs> is he canceled now for something he did like 50 years ago? I think nobody's canceling him because he's senile and has been out of the spotlight. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, um, uh, here is uh, a guess for this one because uh, I know I know I couldn't do it Antonioni without like someone else here to talk it through. It's um, Chris Funderburg. Just you, if I greet you with a blank. Uh, silence. It's because I didn't hear what you said. So just just repeat it if you can. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if I greet you with a blank silence, it's because I'm ignoring you. Okay. Now, uh, Joel, um, had you heard of this uh, uh, the eclipse before I told you we're doing this? Uh, only as like something Martin Scorsese talked about. Not when it came to like uh, Antonioni movies, I think the only one I'd really heard anybody talk about was Blow Up, and it's probably because that one's pretty easily. uh, I mean, it's English language, and it's fun to watch the '60s through that. Like, what was going on in England because it seemed like such a wild time. Like most people probably have seen that movie if they've seen any of his movies. So, uh, not. I can't. I can't really say that uh, I heard anything about it. All right. So, um, Chris, why did you pick um, this movie to talk about? Um, because I really, really like this movie. Well, and I don't. I don't like Antonioni in general. Um, but this is this is one of my my favorite movies. Hmm. Maybe of all time. Probably not anymore. When I when I first saw it. Back in in college, it was it was definitely this was a movie I really loved for a long time, and uh, and I've got to admit up front I have a <laughs> I have a policy of I refuse to watch this movie unless it's in a movie theater. So I haven't seen it in about seventeen years, mm. but don't worry, I know it inside and out. Uh, it just doesn't get shown that often, and I watched it when it was when we had the print at at my my college. I watched it like you know five or six times that week alone and then you know i've probably seen it another 
three or four times on top of that. Yeah. Sounds like you like it. (laughs) Yeah, I did. And I think it's a, I think it's a real, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly popular now to say as, as viewing changes that, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you see something on, you know, the great movies all work, even if you're watching them on your iPhone. And that's probably true to a certain extent that even, you know, Lawrence of Arabia 2001, it still, it still works, even if you see it on that. But there are some movies that I, I just personally, uh, I feel like it's a little bit like, you know, looking at a postage stamp sized reproduction of a Jackson Pollock and being like no I get that that artwork's having the total impact it should on me you know seeing the Sistine Chapel painted uh, you know uh, in a in the page of a book you know a textbook and being like yeah I've seen the Sistine Chapel I think that uh you know there's certain artworks that for me uh, are completely a different experience if you see them in a theater in a darkened room with an audience around you and this is uh, this is one of them, you know. I'm sure that you can get something out of it if you watched it on a TV or whatever. But I personally, you know, you know I have a different relationship to it. No, no hmm. judging anybody or anything. It's certainly not an, an elitist position I'm taking. But uh, right, you're, you're not you know? saying that people shouldn't do it. It's just your personal preference. I'm saying you shouldn't. I'm saying that you haven't seen this movie if you haven't oh, no, seen no. it in the theater. I, I really do. This is what I'm saying is I, as I don't think that you've, you know, experienced a, a Jackson Pollock painting if you've only seen like a posted card size reproduction of it. And I don't think you've seen the Mona Lisa if you've only seen a photograph of it in an art book. And I don't think you've seen the eclipse if you haven't seen it in a the theater. Hmm. But, you know, I'm sure it's still I'm sure there's still plenty to get out of it, but. At any rate, <laughs> yeah. there's a few movies like like that that I feel really strongly that way. A lot of them use light in a different way than this one does. This is not as heavily dependent on light. Something like Victor Reese's El Sur or Michael Haneke's Time of the Wolf are movies that I think it's crazy to watch anywhere but a movie theater because they're so dependent on light and having controlled lighting conditions. But, you know, to yeah, each his own, it is what it is. You can only do what you can do. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the way I feel about most softcore pornography. It's best in the theater. No, that's not true. I wish. I was thinking the other day, Chris <laughs> and I were talking about this, about how like has any have have any of the truly great softcore movies, like In the Heat of Passion, ever been shown in a theater? Like has it has it ever been shown to show like Night Eyes? Has it ever once been screened in a theater? Because those movies, some of them look like they were filmed on 35 millimeter, but it's I mean, just like impossible the, to imagine like they made prints of of, of those. Yeah. yeah, but like the the old Rally Metzger ones were, but outside, I guess with Wakefield Pool, who just died. But besides those guys, I can't really think of much yeah. that like was. I mean like the golden era of softcore, the like 90s softcore when Blockbuster sort of and Basic Instinct came together to create the the subgenre of softcore as a really financially Mm. dominant thing. Yeah, I'll I'll bet the answer is mostly no, yeah. Yeah. Yes, it seems pretty impossible. Yeah, so... um... Uh, I won't. I won't go through the uh, Antonioni Netflix DVD queue thing again. There, I've done in two two past episodes. 
actually, I think three past episodes. But um, this was the one that it wasn't painful to get through. Where blow up was for me just it, like it it irked it my explain to me it, why why this one. Uh, this one just felt like it was easier to go down. Mm-hmm. I, I think because it was like more overtly political. Uh, that like made it easier to swallow. Where like the other ones just felt like a, a slog to get through. This one felt just more like, I guess purposeful is the easiest way to put it. I think in a very objective way, it's better than the others. I don't like Antonioni at all. And some of his movies, like La Ventura, I find patently ridiculous as a film. Um, Mm. It's basically this one, The Passenger, and Red Desert are the only ones that I like. Mm. And I think a lot of them are just, you know, I don't know if it's just that I've been too poisoned by Truffaut, who really hated Antonioni, and really Mm. they spent a lot of time sniping with each other professionally and you know Bergman also thought Antonioni was a joke um you know but I really don't like his movies apart from this one and I think that this one on some objective level is better than the others the way that Red Desert I think is also objectively better than the others I uh, I gotta say out of the three that we watch for the show this is like my least favorite of the the bunch but uh, not to say that I, I didn't like the movie or anything like that I obviously really liked the movie I just uh, I don't I, I don't know necessarily what you mean by having any sort of political uh, objective other than showing that you know people at, are bad with money everywhere all the time and a, a rich person is just another person I don't I, you know what get explain yourself the, like the thematically, this one stuck out. Just like it was easier to grasp. Where La Ventura was just like a Hitchcock riff with a bunch of boring scenes loosely connected. Blow up was like uh, I didn't say at the time because after Aaron said why she loved it, I was like oh, I can't say this joke about why I don't like it. <laughs> oh come on! Um, <laughs> it, it feels like a forty-five-year-old dad who's making a movie he thinks is cool to me. Really? Yeah, it feels like so hokey to me. Where it's like, I, I'm being on, I'm being genuine. To me, no, no, oh, I, I just want to know what, what in particular. Like, I mean, like, I'm for, older than you, so maybe it's I maybe know, it's my problem. But like, blow up just felt like, oh, the kids like hippie shit and art and and naked ladies. Let's why don't we do that? It just felt like this hokey, weird. Like I'm gonna make an art movie. Like, Have you guys seen Zabriskie Point? No, I don't want to watch it. It's that one. It's the, exactly what you're saying, but taken a hundred times further. Mm. It's this oh, no. like totally tone deaf vision of like counterculture that's patently ridiculous. People love it though. Now it's been one of those movies that's been saved and rediscovered. It's gotten the Ishtar treatment. Yeah, people are gonna love like, what they love. Yeah, like what you like if you. It's like, I know so, so many people who love Antonioni, and it's just like, it's not for me. I'm not going to think less of you or anything. It's just, I, I, I keep trying, and this is the closest to liking. Like, I don't patently hate it. This one is like a solid middle of the road for me, which is a big improvement over the other two. Mm-hmm. 
So you you felt like the the narrative in blow up was was like the the problem with the character and the situation not being being something that seemed. Uh, sorry, my phone went off. It just felt like something seemed fantastical and not. It never felt fantastical at all to me. It just felt well, like a bunch of random scenes rather. thrown together. In Love on Terror, it feels like a bunch of random scenes thrown together. And right. this one feels like... Well, I guess, but this one feels like there's an actual uh, like narrative and thematic glue connecting it together. Sure. I, I, I guess. Tell me the story. It's, I mean, it's Antonio, it's a loose story. Um, <laughs> but it's got narrative clue. <laughs> what the clue? No, I'm sorry. I'm, 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 I'm being mean. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, yeah, let's hear what works. Uh, I mean, Monica Vitti, she's great. I haven't seen her in her, like, movie star stuff. Because, mm. uh, like, all that Italian stuff is kind of hard to get a hold of. Or it's not, you know, dubbed or whatever. But um, like this, this was the first one. I don't know. Like it just the stuff of the stock market, the, like the stuff with like the with Africa was like, oh, they're actually acknowledging, uh, you know, the racism and shit like that. It's like, okay, this is actually like stuff I'm kind of interested in. And there's more. It's not as many people as hanging out alone. There's a lot of she's with other people. And so it has, and we're like, people alone for too long in a movie for me is just like the most boring thing on the planet. Okay. Well, that now that makes sense to me. Now, now I'm really getting this thing. Chris, how do you feel? About, about uh, what? The, so I, I think the, the, one of the things going through the Ecclesiastes is the, like the feeling of alienation, right? The, this kind of like loneliness that the, uh, uh, what's her name's going through. And uh, the, I, I found the stock market part to be almost like a, like I was watching a different movie for a second personally, but I don't, um, how, how do you feel about the, the stock parts? Like, Oh, I love that stuff. I lo- mm. I think those scenes are really spectacularly strange. Manny Farber has a great line about how the stock market people appear to be trying to fling their own hands away, right? Mm-hmm. That they're gesturing so strongly with it. And that stuff was all filmed basic documentary style, basically documentary style. Antonioni started out as a documentarian and making documentary films. And he basically just went into the real stock market and had them had them do their thing in there and uh, set up the camera and film them doing it. And I think it has a great chaotic energy to it, a very strange quality to those scenes, and is a good contrast to the standard Antonioni stuff that takes up the rest of the movie of people, you know, of his uh, landscape as psychology aesthetic, where these physical spaces that people are in are supposed to be conveying the psychological information of the characters in a way that dialogue or performance normally would in other movies, that instead you have them standing in a space that tells you how they feel, as opposed to having them act or speak it out. And so it's a good contrast to that because he writes about alienation so much, so he has alienation, alienating spaces with a lot of 
emptiness and industrial rot because those are the things that his characters are suffering from, from emptiness and a kind of moral spiritual rot. And then the stock market scenes are a great frenetic contrast to all that, a, a totally chaotic contrast, although certainly just as empty. It's, a, it's an empty noise. Um, I mean, in general, the movie is about thematically is about how people's lives are built on top of things they don't understand, right? Whether it's the Italian people having their lives built on colonialism and people's economics built on the stock market where they can't really explain like, hey, what happens to the money when it gets lost? Where does it go? Now Alan Delange shrugs or having it be love, you know, like what do we mean when we say we're in love and we're being made happy by love? It's sort of a mysterious hard to define feeling. And so, you know, I think that the stock market scenes in that context end up pairing uh, very well with the, the rest of the film. And I think that there's a nice uh, tonal change up to them in a way that a lot of uh, Antonioni's other movies are very monotonous because they don't have scenes as sort of interesting and frantic as the stock market stuff in this. Yeah, I mean, that that touch of the realism. See, that's, I do, I do like I do like the realism, and uh, like that's the the end of the movie. That's what I felt. I felt like this this realism touch thing, you know, where well, it's, it's weird because he pushes realism so far that it becomes mm-hmm. f- uh, a fake and artificial feeling. That he definitely mm-hmm. comes out of the same school of thought as the other neo realists uh and but he just pushes everything to such an extreme degree that it becomes very like arch and aestheticized and sort of anti-realist he uses documentary style you know antonioni has also said that he wants each day shooting to be a documentary about what happened on set and I think he just pushes that mindset so far that you end up with these stra- very strangely stylized movies. One of the things I like about The Eclipse is that it's a really, really weird fucking movie with a lot of very puzzling uh, artistic choices in it. And I think that that sort of, um, like what doesn't work for me about something like La Ventura or Blowout is mm. that um, the, the artistic choices are not mysterious to me. They feel fake mysterious, you know, like an artist sometimes uses an obscurity to hide a lack of underlying substance, right? Mm-hmm. I think that that's what's happening in those movies, and it feels like I can see through them very well. This one feels more like he's successfully hidden the lack of underlying substance to me, and so it feels like there's more to it to me Mm. um which is good that makes sense you know it feels like uh, there's more to explore and more to try and understand you know like looking into you know uh, a sort of a an opaque black mirror of a lake as opposed to a fresh blue one where you can see the bottom you can sort of imagine depths in this movie that i can't in la ventura or il grido or la note or, or any of the other ones that i think are much more monotonous in mm. this one yeah uh okay well Joel, what do you like about this well, well, well not rephrase that what do you like what, what makes this the your least favorite of the ones we've covered uh what makes this the least favorite of um yeah. like i said i the the, the entirety of the stock the i mean because that stock market scene goes on like there's multiple ones that go on. yeah there's two stock markets and the stock market there's the one where they're first there and then there's the crash scene yeah, and with the other two movies, 
I got an emotional connection to both of them, especially especially Laventura, but also even Blow Up. Um, and it wasn't because I, you know, can relate to a, you know, in Blow Up, the, the a whatever counterculture photographer, Austin Powers dude. It's because I can relate to the ambling nature, the loneliness, the seeing things in environments constantly as pictures or art, as photographs, as as malleable, uh, I don't know. Uh, like, it, it, it touches me in, in a very familiar emotional place. And this one did the least often, um, the times that I, I was feeling that was when uh, when uh, Monica Vitti was wandering, she she seemed to be wandering for most of the movie, right? She she'd hold something would hold her attention for about a minute, and then she would move on. And a lot of the shots, you know, like the seeing through doorways, like the way things are framed, and you know, door frame, picture frame, all that stuff like that, and uh, the simple things like putting something into a you know, uh, still water and then moving it with your hand and seeing the ripples. Uh, seeing a balloon <laughs> from a distance and, and approaching it, you know, going to see, like, a, chasing after a bunch of dogs to find one particular dog and not... And then hearing that fence making the noise in the mm -hmm. night and the wind. Yeah. Like, you hear you hear music, you, you, you see the beauty in these things, uh, and... Some of the, like, <laughs> the the three women hanging out scene was weird, uh, but, yeah, oh. and, and that was also a little off-putting, obviously. Oh, oh, you mean the blackface scene? Oh, I don't know what yeah. you're talking about. She was just really tan. <laughs> yeah. That was, man, that, that was, I don't say, like, I don't say mind-blowing, but, like, having that up here or nowhere was real... This is kind of this is kind of dull. Then I woke the fuck up. I'm like, wait, wait, <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> yeah, she turned into the guy behind the the dumpster in uh, Mulholland Drive and uh, was doing. I thought that was a woman behind a dumpster in Mulholland. Drive. Yeah, whatever. Uh, <laughs> she, I, I was, I was like, holy shit, this is not. No, don't do this. But I was also very much enjoying like the. <laughs> The dancing she was doing with like the the stepping and things like that, so that that was a conflict, man. And then, but I mean, later, if you look at his other like, movies. Eh. What that scene is about is about the idea of white people stepping into Africa and stepping all over Africa with no understanding of what it is and what the culture is, and having this very. Uh, condescending and racist vision of it that's certainly what the passenger is all about and i think that's where it expands the ideas i think in the back of his head he has a very uh, radical critique especially of italian culture and that this movie is about the sickness of italian culture right that he he obviously finds the stock market and the way economics is handled in the modern world incredibly dispiriting he thinks that the focus on material goods is grotesque he hates these neighborhoods like the one they're living in in the beginning that that uh, residential neighborhood outside of rome 
all of this stuff he really despises. And that scene is intended to be another example of there's a spiritual sickness with Italy, with the colonialist history of Italy, where these people have sort of absorbed it. They've absorbed Africa in some way, but have no understanding of it except for this racist caricature of it and have no relationship to it. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. something you see expanded on in his other movies, certainly the the colonialism stuff, but it's it's this movie is unquestionably going through and scene by scene identifying things that are making uh, Italy sick. You know, he he talks about how there's something wrong with uh, eros, right? Like as a concept, as like an overriding cultural concept, uh, like a spiritual concept in Italy, and how there's all of this emphasis on eroticism in the modern world because eros is all spiritually sick and broken that that it's trying to repair itself by constantly looking for new erotic partners right and so this movie is going through and identifying the things that are causing the sickness you know and again you also see it in red desert more where again landscape as interiority landscape as psychology where there's all of these disgusting industrial factories like polluting what should be this beautiful landscape, you know, and sort of the post-industrial psychology of Italy is something that he's he's trying to identify and illustrate uh, as the sickness inside of it, as psychological sickness. And so that's what that scene is about. Yeah. I mean, I mean that, like, like, the thing that really... The uh, frat scene in particular was the friend saying, like, I want, uh, the monkeys are taking arms. And it's like, oh, they're talking about the, um, uh, the movement of independence and how that's, you know, making them uncomfortable after, you know, uh, like, you, you kind of put better. But just having stuff like that was like, okay, this is like stuff I'm actually interested in. And I think that's part of why I, uh, don't hate this one. It still had that, like, kind of that pace that like for that uh that he always has that from i've seen that just annoys me at, at some at some, at some at some level but this one the pace was tolerable because the content in the uh and like the idea content i hate that word now i trying to say that um the you know what i meant like the 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 themes and ideas of like money uh, colonialism that made it more interesting and made the pace tolerable for me i still like the pace is still my big issue with him it's just it's it makes me it makes me tired which may be the point but i don't know i i find it this slow to a fault yeah there's no question this is that that his movies are slow and that this one is the slowest of the slow, you know? There's no there's no denying that. Yeah, I think compared to the other two, this one has the least mystery going about. You know, the, the mystery is what what's yes. going on? Why why are you so why are you so sad? No, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's also like the least Hitchcockian because the other two are Hitchcock riffs. One was uh, deep. I'm sorry, deep red. No, deep red is a riff. Is a riff off of <laughs> blow up. Uh, blow up is a riff off of um, a real win- real window kind of. And then Lama Charles a riff off of um. Uh, I forgot the Hitchcock one. 
what lady vanishes that one yeah sure yeah the most obvious one <laughs> The mystery to me feels way more interesting than like a Hitchcock thing because because there is no answer. Like it's more satisfying to me that there is no answer because that's more realistic. You know, things happen and you could you could dig desperately for an explanation, and it you know in real life, who knows why this happened? Yeah, I mean that ties into the whole themes of like money and colonialism, like. Well, why is it this way? And, you know, the movie just never gives a clear answer, and, she, and everyone's left confused. Yeah, I mean, it's also, it's also a lot of that stuff is, is strange coming from Antonioni as far as the colonialism stuff. I'm not sure if you guys have, have talked about this on the other Antonioni episodes, but he started out, he wrote a film for, in 1942, for Rossellini, uh, and Rossellini w- was a fascist. He was a horrible, horrible guy. And so, and Fellini, and he made propaganda films during World War II. His best friend was Vittorio Mussolini, who's obviously Benito Mussolini's son. Vittorio ran like the national film magazine and was a big time producer. And Rossellini and, and, uh, Mussolini had bonded over their love of expensive sports cars and had become best friends. And so you had Rossellini and Fellini making um, propaganda films during World War II. They were called white telephone films generally, although they did not make exactly white telephone films. And they were not like Nazi propaganda. They were more like what American propaganda manifests as. I compare it to like the movie American Sniper, right? Like that kind of film is what they were making. And Fellini, you know, Fellini was also like somebody, he was making a propaganda film in North Africa and had to be rescued by the Nazis and flown to safety, right? And Antonioni started working out in this group and then he went and went to Paris and made a movie with Marcel Carnet for Continental Films, which was the Nazi-controlled French production company and the Vichy government. And Continental is... Again, working with Rossellini and working with Continental, these are complicated situations because a lot of resistance directors in France worked with Continental. And Continental, in fact, had a mandate to be like the MGM studios of France. They didn't want to make political films at all. They just wanted to replace um, the Western Hollywood movies, right? And and sort of remove all of the that western poison from france and a lot of directors who were explicitly anti-nazi sort of snuck anti-nazi messages into the continental films movies um i there's no way to make that case with the white telephone films and the and the uh vittorio mussolini produced movies right and so antonioni comes out of that background as opposed to the people who were very explicitly anti-fascist and literal anti-fascist not like American cosplay anti-fascists, but the literal anti-fascists like Luciano Visconti and people like that um, who who were sort of against that and who were dead set against Rossellini. And if you look at Rossellini's early movies, you know, they're very much fascist apologia. They have like Open City. The idea of those movies is why Italy shouldn't be to blame culturally, spiritually for what happened during World War II, right? 
these movies are about like, well, the Catholic Church was actually involved in the resistance, right? You see that idea in Open City. When we now know that the Catholic Church was actually, in fact, funneling people to Nazi Germany to be exterminated, you know? They were doing the literal opposite of what they're proposed to do. And then also the villainous caricatures of the Nazis in Open City to say like, no, Italy wasn't that. Those were the bad guys. They had the, the predatory lesbians, you know, like you see in Open City and all that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those guys started making those movies or went completely apolitical like Fellini, who just didn't want to touch the past at all. Antonioni is in a slightly different position where I don't think his radical credentials are so bona fide that you can't say, well, wait, what the fuck was he doing working with those guys? You know, but at the same time, uh, there's no evidence that he was actually a, a fascist at all. I think he was more like what most people would be when they would find themselves in sort of these epoch defining uh, nightmares, historical nightmares, where he was just some guy trying to do his job and trying to do work that made mm-hmm. sense and that he liked, you know? Mm-hmm. And so when you look at these films, I think that they're informed by a sense of, holy shit, that was crazy what we did. I can't believe that, you know? I think that there's an amount of him looking at there's something really wrong with Italy and it's like slowly occurring to him more than he's coming at it with a radical philosophy. He's not like somebody who's trying to attack politically the way Visconti is and say something about Italy with a political critique. He's somebody I think that it's slowly dawning on him how fucked up Italy was (laughs) in his young adulthood, you know? And I think that you see a bit of that happening in Eclipse which is where a lot of these scenes are hard to interpret the meaning of the political meaning of these scenes because I don't think he has a really well-refined political ideology. I think that's what Bergman means when he calls Antonioni a total amateur. I don't think it's just a style insult. I think he, he means it as this is a guy who has not thought deeply about the world and is sort of improbably naive about the way things work, right? And so I think that a lot of this movie is sort of hard to read and interpret in that way. Yeah, yeah. we talked about Rossellini in the General Della Rivera. Yeah. And fucking scumbag. I hate (laughs) Rossellini so much. It infuriates me that he like, he got away with it. He got away with it. He got to be a total awful fascist and like he got away with it. No one ever badmouths him. Anyway, go on. Yeah, yeah, we, we got into that, and I didn't, like, I did some research into it, but I couldn't find anything that, like, said he, like, he was, like, firmly into the whole fascism angle. But, His like, best friend was Mussolini's son. It's like there's such an apology for him of, like, he wasn't really a fascist. He was he was in the fascist, um, he was, he was their, whatever their youth brigade was, he was in it. It's like their version of the brown shirt youth brigades he was in. Oh, like, okay. there's there's no way to deny that that's what he was. And he, I believe, I will have to look this up. I'm 95% sure he was a fascist party member, too. Um, that I, I wasn't sure if, like, like if they were friends out of convenience wait, or if they were legit friends. Oh. I couldn't tell if, in my little research, if they were legit best friends or, like, just friends out of convenience. Who? 
Um, Fellini, not Fellini, Rossellini, and Mussolini's son. Yeah, I think Rossellini and Fellini and Mussolini's son were legit good friends. I think Fellini was just a guy who was willing to do whatever. You know, I think he's probably more in the in the Antonioni school. But again, there was such a project of burying what Italy had done and differentiating themselves from the Nazis, right? That they sort of had the convenient scapegoat of Germany being much, much worse, that they got away with it. There was just so much buried for Italy. And again, it was in it was in America's best interest, as it was with Japan, to bury what they had done and give them rehabilitated images as fast as possible. Historically, I think that's actually probably the right thing to do. I think that's probably what you have to do with these horrible countries that have done horrible things is give everyone a free pass uh, in order to rehabilitate them and make them functional again, you know, especially with World War II, where the the sort of uh, punitive nature of World War I had caused World War II in a lot of ways, um, where it's trying not to repeat that mistakes. It's obviously a big, hard question, but I think that, you know, America definitely had it in their interest to rehabilitate the cultural uh, image of Italy and Japan after the war. For sure. Yeah. But um, going right back to, to Antonioni, um, how did you first hear about him? I don't think we got Me? into that. Yeah, you. How did I hear about him? Yeah. He's, I don't know. He's one of the most famous directors of all time. I, thought, oh. I just I you heard about him the way I heard about Truffaut or whatever. I don't know. He's one of those guys that you just you get you get told really early on these are the titans, you know Bergman, Kurosawa, Fellini, Truffaut, Antonioni. He's just he was one of those guys. Uh, I think when when world cinema became like an international phenomena in the in the sixties and seventies and sort of this. Uh, art house cultural powerhouse in the United States. There were a few figures that were just like the really towering figures of it, and he was one of them, you know? Yeah. All right. Um, okay, so... Um, uh, oh, so, like, going back to, like, I think another thing that works for me is this, is having Elaine Delon, because I've seen in a couple movies, but... Uh, over the past few years, and I thought he was mostly fine. And then seeing after seeing Purple Noon and then seeing this, it was a real wake-up call of, oh, holy shit, this guy is amazing. Yeah, I can get that. Uh, we st- is, uh, I started to watch Le, Le Piscine. And uh, uh, Le Piscine? Talk, talking about bad people, too. Alan Delon was another gigantic scumbag. Yeah, that makes Aww. sense. Yeah, guy that handsome has to be evil. There's yeah. his uh, his his bodyguard was murdered, and the week before he murdered, he he gave the quote. I can't remember the exact quote, but it was, "If I murdered, it's Alan Delon that oversaw it," and mm. uh, because he was apparently going to go to the press, Alan Delon had been accused of, uh, along with some government ministers, having orgies with underage women. And the, mm. like to a point of underageness that this bodyguard was like, they have to stop this. And uh, he was also friends with some some very uh, underworld types who were apparently facilitating the uh, the 
girls for this. This is all speculative hearsay. He's still alive. I don't know that any of this has been proven in any meaningful capacity. I guess I don't want to get sued at all. Uh, I guess I should, you know. Is he responsible for passing his death? For he, you know, he, uh, you know, it's hard to say, but uh, but certainly he's one of those guys that I'm always surprised uh, hasn't been canceled. A la Polanski. Certainly, what he's been accused of is uh, Polanski, but with a multiplier, you know, on it. Yeah. Oh jeez. Yeah. He's a great movie star, though. I love him in movies. I'm very, very able to separate uh, artist from the art. So I love him as a movie star. I love all the movies he's in. Although he's such terrible casting as Tom Ripley. Purple Noon is a movie I hate, and I just think he's just the worst casting. Yeah. That movie, we got into an episode. It'll come out pretty soon after this recording. I I get into the weird... like uh, him playing a like I didn't know they're supposed to be American for a stretch of the movie. Like, you're like wait, they're supposed to be from America, but they're speaking French the whole time. Yeah, this is yeah. This their is names are all like Joe and Jeff, and it still yeah. Dickie Greenleaf, that's the best one. They keep the name Dickie Greenleaf, <laughs> and then he's this slurry Frenchman. Oh, I am Dickie Greenleaf from America. Okay. Um, what was this? Uh, okay, like I don't like the, the thing with Antonio and he is I never have much to say besides it looks pretty. Like like look at this like I just see well, not this in particular, but like Blaventura, I can see like that being an influence on it on with um Ar- Argento and his and like the types of cinematography you see in like his golden era stuff. Whoa, that's interesting. That's that's not a connection I would have. Uh, I mainly think of really like, thought about that. Yeah, like I know just, Cribs is really into comparing Deep Red and Blow Up. That that that's those are two movies that he loves to uh, to compare and contrast. Because I think it's stuff like um, uh, like Lavender has a lot of like faraway shots of people alone, and then I and then you have Suspiria with the dog killing the blind man. Which yeah. is done from a big, uh, faraway angle, and some of the other ones have like noticeable, like um, faraway, like uh, like uh, shots that like always make me think of like uh, Laventura. Yeah. A bit. I mean, they're also both movies with people walking around Rome. They have, they have that texture to them. They both got the. David Hemmings in uh, Deep Red and Blow Up. There's no way to to avoid that comparison. Yeah, and the whole Hitchcock connection too. All goes back, yeah, all goes back to Hitchcock. Um, uh, in a previous episode, and Tume said the Passenger is one that is a, a gateway for Antonioni. Yeah. Is that is that? Do you think that's a, a gateway? One. I don't think gateway is the right word. It's his easiest one by mm. far. If you don't like Antonioni, you will still probably like The Passenger. Mm. Um, I, I think any of them are a fine gateway because they're all so similar. You know, I, I would say that, you know, Eclipse is probably not a great gateway, although it was for me. I didn't like him until I saw mm. 
uh, eclipse but yeah. I, I don't know Passen- passenger is really really interesting film i hesitate to say it's the best one because i like red desert and eclipse so much but it's like it's the best of some axis between best and most regular it's it's the one uh, uh, which ones uh, have you seen most of his uh work me yes yeah i think i've seen everything he's directed um. You want to talk about Mystery of Overwald some? <laughs> His shot on video for TV movie from the 80s? Hell yeah. Really sucks. Oh, man. It's as Gonna bad as a movie gets, Mystery of Overwald. It's like mm-hmm. silly period piece with like digital, like digital TV effects. Like he clearly got a video toaster for it kind of thing. <laughs> so, um... Uh, Joel, you haven't talked much. What did you what um What do you think of this movie? What do you think of like you know, Monica Vitti and Elaine Delon in this? I think uh, Monica Vitti has uh, I don't know if there there's something that is slightly. I, I hesitate to talk about a woman's looks in in general because it it, it has nothing to do with attractiveness. Like I'm talking about like an aesthetic thing. Monica Beatty is not uh, like what I would consider the the typical Italian beauty that's going to be presented in these movies. Like she has a her face is slightly unusual to me, and that that could just be a perception on my part with one of my many. Uh, psychological mental disorders and no that's not a joke uh, but I think that she she plays it so well that that longing look that like that quiet uh, pain thing that it really works for me uh, Alon I haven't seen uh, Mr. Delon I don't think in uh, other things have I, except for... Well, oh, I've seen the Circular Rouge. Have you seen the Samurai? Uh, no, I have not. Oh. It's good. I think he's, oh. he's good. And I, 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 I really like him in Purple Noon, but I totally get what have you're you saying. Have you seen Chris. his version of Zorro? No, of course it's not. terrible. Oh, man, I can't wait to see it now. <laughs> I get excited by things like that. Oh, yeah, and I didn't see Red Sun when you guys saw it either. Oh, wait, so, uh, uh, Red Sun, he's fine. That, that's more should be seen for this, um, uh, Toshiro and Bronson. Oh, this is interesting. I own I just found the quote. Blu-ray. I just found the quote. If I get killed, it is 100% the fault of Alan Delon and his godfather, Francois Marcantoni. That's the, the bodyguard whose body was found in a dump. Well, you know what anyway. they say. Stitches and snitches. No, that's not true. Uh, yeah, um, and I, I think that they have chemistry together, but I think what makes their performance have that chemistry is the hesitation that that Monica Vitti like puts into the into it. You know, when he's desperately trying to pull the Italian dude thing, where you just slam your face into her face until your lips are actually smashing together thing. She's, she's, uh, I was just telling 
I was just telling uh, Spencer before that I was watching Dragon Ball Z all the way through because uh, I'm on disability right now, so I got to do something with my time. And I was like, wow, she's pulling like a dodging like Goku here. What's going on? <laughs> uh, that's too nerdy. Um, and I, I got it. Don't worry. Oh no no don't yeah yeah no I'm sure the listener does I've, too. I've never seen a single episode of Dragon Ball Z. I don't know anything about it. You are You're just fine. You're not missing much. Just uh, just imagine uh, uh, exaggerated kung fu fighting and flying around. You're... I I feel like I can imagine exactly what that show is without ever seeing it. You got it. Yeah. Um. And when they finally get to him, down to it, when he's brought her to his fucking... Is this his parents' house? This, this palace he lives in. And putting the frame of glass in between the two of them and both of them kissing on each side. It's like, I, I felt... Uh, I don't know, but... <laughs> You know, romantic troubles I've ever had in my relationship or previous relationships. Like, sometimes you just feel like there is a pane of glass between what you want and also how you're protecting yourself. Because sometimes what you want is not what you need. Um, uh, the reason, yeah, the, I, I have, the reason why I like these less than the, this one less than the other two is because I, I kind of dug the whole you're not going to figure out the mystery thing of this. And, like, I think, I think if I watch this again, I would be like, oh, okay, now I do get where that vi- the vibe is in this movie. Uh, not, and like I said, I, I don't want to be like, this movie is bad or anything like that, because it's definitely not true, you know? It was 7 out of 10, as far as I'm concerned, you know, plus, plus a heart sign on Letterboxd, which means, oh, yeah, I'd watch it again. Um, but uh, I'm just I'm just such a sucker for all the like the the things that you guys I know probably really dislike about La Ventura, which is the the scenery, the 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 landscape, the emptiness, the the water crashing, the 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 what I don't know. You can imagine it's filler or whatever, but it was it was like warming my heart in this way and. Uh, since this is all in the city, uh, kind, kind of like blow up, but the, I don't know. Her walking around at night, nobody sleeps. Like, do we see anybody sleep in this movie? It's it's like we're in this state where it's like we're just going day to day, and do we continue? Yes, we do. Do we make money? Yes, we do. Do we lose money? Yes, we do. I don't think you see one sleep. Yeah, it's kind of strange that way, but yeah, um, I like it. I'm really glad that you liked it, at least enough to give it <laughs> a halfway decent score. Well, I don't in your brain. Yeah, well, I don't like do their star ratings anymore. Just lighter box. That's a waste of time. It's just it's just like or it is. It's just like or like or not like. And if there's no if there's no heart, it means it's fine, or I don't like it. And no, it has I've got no like heart. deep meaning behind each of my separate ratings <laughs> because that like the code is for myself; it's not for anyone yeah. else. I know. That's like I reach the point of like, why, why am I doing this? Who cares? Sure. I just want to like have like have like a dumb dumb review that's like 
uh, like in joysticks, it's like Pac-Man uh, um, screen wipe. Just <laughs> I mean, it's, the the problem with that, I feel like, is do you do you account every movie that you've seen as like this is a movie, so I'm glad I've seen it, no matter what. I, don't know, I have other stuff to do, and then I, I don't really care <laughs> enough to uh, like uh, star rate anything anymore. But you have a podcast. Yeah. I demand it's, ratings. It's more fun to talk it out than just to put five stars. It's like, who cares? It's more interesting just to have a conversation about it. Well, then I need uh, 16 paragraphs for each movie you see in review form. And I'm going to submit those to the uh, scoring board, and uh, we'll get back to you. All right. But, um... Okay, so, Chris, have you seen... Um, Many of the, or, or many, any of the Monica Vitti like movie star um, roles. Sure, yeah, and she got. I think I'm not sure of the exact trajectory of her career. She started out early on. She's associated almost exclusively with with Antonioni uh, early in her career. But then she she uh, you know with like La Venturas and Manote and blah blah blah. But then she starts doing the other, the other stuff. Uh, of yeah, I mean, to the extent of like you know, Modesty Blaze and things like that. She did a Alberto Sordi movie. You know, um, I've seen I've seen some of it. It's fine. I'm not not a huge Monica Vitti fan by any stretch of the imagination. I don't think I would ever watch a movie just because Monica Vitti is in it. You know, she's mm. good in Phantom of Liberty. That's probably my favorite thing that monica vidi's in yeah like the Leipun wells every time we're like we do an episode of an italian movie it seems like there's someone in the movie was in phantom liberty or um uh uh the other one the bush it's the french word about like rich people i can never say right you broke up. I couldn't yeah, hear you. Yeah, I don't even know what you're doing. Like you, you're talking about a word that nobody says correctly, but we couldn't the, hear what you were saying. <laughs> the something something of the bourgeoisie. The discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. Yes. And I, was, I, I was surprised. Like, oh, yes, I forgot that so many people were in those movies. Uh, but, yeah, that's, uh, that's a stat cast. Yeah. But, uh... And, and listeners, if you're wondering, the uh, Twitter icon for um, Pink Smoke comes from Phantom Liberty. And that was a huge surprise when I saw it. And the name the name of my film production company is also from Phantom of Liberty. Arctal Ructive Films. Yeah. But, uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, I don't know if... If you're interested in Tonioni, I don't know, watch this one. If you're on the fence about it, watch this one, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I think that just why you can watch any of them, and if they're off-putting to you, there's probably not going to be one that's like the breakthrough that you love, you know? You, you will probably like The Passenger if you see it, you know? Blow Up is another one that people like without necessarily liking his other work. But I think that of the real Antonioni's, you know, 
if, if you like Il Grito, you'll like the other stuff. If you like La Note, you'll like the other stuff. If you don't like them, you're probably not going to get a huge amount out of the other ones. He's pretty pretty consistent in his approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, around the time of this recording, we're releasing a white ep- episode on white material, the Claire Nee movie, which I didn't even think would tie into like uh, Eclipse, but it kind of weirdly does. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, which, I think it uh, would tie in even better to The Passenger. would be a really good double uh, feature, those two movies, actually. Uh, does The Passenger have um, uh, Lord Raiden in it? Have what? Lord Raiden. No. <laughs> Not that I'm aware. It's been a minute since I've seen it, though. Mm. Don't know. Don't know if Christopher Lambert shows up in it mm. at all. It'd surprise me if he did, but we'll see. I mean, okay. he'll always uh, be, you know, McLeod to me. Yep. His, well, son, his son didn't gain the Highlander thing, unfortunately. In white material, his son. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wait, didn't the son survive in white material? Spoiler for no, white material. No, spoiler, he does not. <laughs> oh, wait, oh, wait, never mind. Only Isabel Hopper is the one left, only one alive. Okay, yeah. Again, spoiler for a white material if you haven't seen it. Um, I love how that movie's epigraphs seem to be in favor of child soldiers. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> what, that makes you guys uncomfortable somehow? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, clarity movies are always super comfortable and easy to understand. Look at High Life. Yeah. yeah. So easy to understand, but High Life. Really, so... I find High Life pretty, pretty easy. Well, I found it easy, but I know plenty of people that would be turned off by it and not enjoy it. I I couldn't watch it with my dad. He'd get like confused and bored of it, and then all the sex stuff. I'd want to leave the room because no. I'm an adult, but still, I don't want to be <laughs> watch a watch a scene like that with my parents around. Uh, do I want to watch this movie where uh, looks like Keith Carradine and Monica Vitti are are in bed together? I don't. I don't think I do. I'm not familiar with that one. It's a, an almost perfect affair from 1979. I'm sure it's terrible. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, Sixty. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, this movie's uh, Eclipse is available in a lot of places. Pretty much all the early Antonioni stuff, well, golden period stuff like the '60s to passengers, easily available. The other stuff, I don't know. Is it worth tracking down? Maybe. If you're into it, you'll you'll figure out yeah. how to track it down if you want. Yeah. Okay, so 1962 recommendations. I kind of went through a whole a bunch of our, of mine through the last few episodes, mm-hmm. and so um, I'll have Chris go first because I have some books uh, at the end. This is hard to pick. 1962 is like one of the best years of all time for movies. It's like got so much good stuff in 62. How many am I supposed to pick? How um two or three? Yeah, two, two or three. three. In fact, you could do up to four if you want to cover up for me. Uh, you know, 
There's a there's a ton of stuff here. Hold on just one sec. Um, oh, oh, I should clarify because uh, Cribs um, chastised me, rightly so, for not seeing Harikiri, for being a, a Nakadai super fan. And I have seen it since then, and Harikiri is basically a masterpiece. You, it is. It's one of Hashimoto's best scripts. It's dynamite. Hush- so oh, of course Hashimoto did that. That's why it's, that's why it's so good. Oh, man. Anyway, so, yeah, so Cribs, if you're listening, so, I have seen it. So 62 has at least nine of my own personal favorite movies of all time. And then because nice. I was just going through and then it's a list, you know, it's like 20 movies that I love from that year. Um, you know, I don't what do I pair it with? I guess, you know, there's the big ones. There's Harikiri, there's Jules and Jim, there's Sanjuro, there's Viva Savi, there's Knife in the Water, there's Exterminating Angel, of course, there's Le Dulos, the Melville film, the the three I'll I'll pick to pair with it just because uh, I like them and probably don't get talked about as much is uh, the great film Cartouche, which I talk about all the time. This is a, uh, a swashbuckler starring jean paul Belmondo and Claudia Cardinal, and it sort of um, presages the Richard Lester uh, Three Musketeers movies, and mm. it's sort of like if you made a, a swashbuckler in the style of um the french new wave and it's incredibly fun it's beautiful it's awesome i love this movie i recommend it at every possible opportunity at all times um it's about a legendary uh uh hold on one sec it's about a legendary uh pickpocket turned legendary outlaw and it's just it's so much fun and it's tragic and beautiful at the end like all swashbucklers at heart it's a romance um and it's yeah i can't recommend cartouche enough it's philippe de broca who did you know probably in america's most famous film is king of hearts uh, which i talked about on the cult cinema podcast uh, recently and uh yeah he's a neat movie neat 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 film you should watch it uh, my uh, second parent. Did you guys have any questions? How does this go? Do you respond to that? Do you say no, good um, cartouche, or I just dive into my next one? <laughs> That's what I've been. I've been meaning to see for a while. Uh, last time I checked, it was not streaming anywhere. Yeah, I don't think it's streaming anywhere. Yeah. It's. I mean, it's streaming on Prime. I'm sure if you want to rent it for three bucks, but it's not oh, streaming no. any place for free. Okay, I'm I'm kind of cheap and kind of have to rely on that. Or I understand. Hopeful. Go to, go to your library. They got great libraries in Delaware. You could That's go to the true. University of Delaware right now and get Cartouche today. I bet. Yeah, I um, drive an hour. Uh, is it that far from you to you to you? For me, it's getting close to an hour, possibly yeah. more. I didn't but know you could drive for an hour in Delaware. You, uh, you can drive for two hours in Delaware. It's about holy that. crap. You should yeah. set it up in advance. They got a great... That was the library system I rented everything from when I was a kid. If you're asking how I saw, you know, La Ventura and stuff in high school, it was always the UD system. Mm-hmm. Um, or the great Video Paradiso there in Newark, Delaware. Oh, you but, said uh, it right. Uh, my next pick is La Jete, the Chris Marker film, mm-hmm. the short movie. 
which is obviously one of the the best movies ever made. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's you know it's a science fiction film, black and white science fiction film, told all in still images except for one image of a of a woman lying in bed. It's all still images, and uh, yeah, it's like a time loop, time travel story, and it's phenomenal and fantastic. It's hard to imagine a better movie than La Jete. It's really uh, pretty pretty close to uh, uh, as close to perfect as a movie can get. And weird and raw and original and emotional and beautiful and all of that. All of the things you would want in a movie is La Jete. Joel, you've seen it, obviously. Spencer, have you seen it? Uh, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I love good. it. Uh, I want to see more Schmarker ones. This, I... They're not a single other one of them is anything like La Jete. Oh. <laughs> huh. That is, it is one of the great outliers in a director's career. It makes no sense that he made it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he's got plenty of other good movies, but, uh, but they are nothing like La Jete. No, there is, there is, I can't think of a single one that's anything like it. He doesn't even make narratives normally. So he's he's good though. He has a great movie on Kurosawa, a documentary uh, on Kurosawa that's very much worth seeing. That you guys I figured would be interested in. It's on yeah. it's on the um, Criterion double disc of Ran. The uh, so that's the easiest oh. way to see it. I think. I guess I think it's just called reason. AK. Oh, oh. Well, I I know what that is. I didn't know it's Chris Marker. Yeah, it's great. It's great. I give it four stars. Um, and then my last pick is uh, Hiroshi Teshigahara's Pitfall, uh, the first of, of the movies that he made with the great uh, Japanese novelist Kobo Abe. It's not based on one of Abe's novels, though. It's based on uh, a teleplay he had written that they then converted into a feature film. And Pitfall is really, really great. Um, Woman in the Dunes and Face of Another are uh, two of the other uh, Abe Teshigahara collaborations that get all of the attention. And I have no idea why Pitfall is left out because Pitfall is every bit as good as those two movies. It is, it is no step down in quality whatsoever. Um, it's, yeah, it's phenomenally good. If you like Face of Another or Woman in the Dunes, Pitfall is just as good as them. And I say that as somebody who thinks that, you know, Face of Another and, and Woman in the Dunes are as good as movies get. Um, and so, also, uh, Reed uh, Kobe, uh, uh, Kobo, uh, fuck, what's his name? Kobo Abe? Kobo Abe. What yeah. about him? No, not, wait. Yes, yes, read his books because I've read The Fox Man. Like yeah. a couple years ago, it was out of uh, curiosity, and uh, I, I love that book. Yeah, it's great. It's great. He's great. I was I was unfamiliar with his uh, with his work before uh, before um, this year. Before I read Boxman, I just knew him as like a screenwriter, and I couldn't believe how good Boxman is. So now I've I've gone ahead and read. Uh, Ruin Map and Secret Rendezvous, and they're both so good. Also, they're, they made a, another collaboration called Ruined Map, which is out of Ruined Map, which is also great. But that one is like 
clearly a slight step down from the others. Uh, it's still a really, really good movie, but I understand why it doesn't get held in the same esteem. And then they made a short film together. That's a very true foeish short film uh, from a, a short film anthology. Uh, I believe it's from uh, Love at 20. Hmm. But now I can't remember what anthology is. It's about a, a young woman going on a like a group date with a couple friends. And it's incredibly true foeish. It's so much like 400 Blows uh, <laughs> or, or Les Mistons that it's, it's almost... Uh, embarrassing but it's quite good it's quite quite good so um but pitfall is um is is where it's at man la jete pitfall cartouche those are all good and then the other 62 films that i love are man who shot liberty valance ride the high country third lover longest day that touch of mink mafioso monkey and winter therese de squareu war of the buttons louvre come back to me third lover cape fear so many phenomenal movies that year just mm-hmm. just a killer killer year for movies yeah. and uh, uh i'll add this this is a little behind the scenes note um one of the many versions of 47 ronin came out in 62 and during the kurosawa season i had an idea of maybe we should do an episode on every version of 47 ronin but <laughs> but that would have been like 20 hours of movies possibly yeah, it would have been impossible. That would have been its own series. Yeah, and there's and the one from 62 has Sasuke Hara in it. And so that was kind of the big draw of like, well, she's in another movie with Mifune, so I kind of have to see that. Yeah. But I never hear anyone talk about the, this version, so maybe it's good, maybe it's not. I really don't know. Yeah, I have no idea. I'm certainly not an, an expert on the various versions of that film. So You know, 60s are an uh, extremely variable era for, for samurai movies. You have some great ones in the 60s, but you also have some, some stinkers where it's sort of falling apart a little bit. Yeah. All right, so um, I have two books that I've brought before that I'll bring up again. One is The Wanting Seeds by Anthony Burgess. It is wildly homophobic and completely indefensible. That said, there's some really interesting ideas in it. It's just, if you can get, if you can get past the uh, clear prejudices that um, Burgess has towards gay people and uh, women, and it's kind of his worst book in terms of, uh, I guess it's not woke as some people would say now. It's like, it just came out now. Well, I don't think it'd be released now. Uh, honestly, it's has some uh, really iffy stuff in it, but like conceptually, it's an interesting uh, ideas in it. And again, it's kind of indefensible. You can't do it, do stuff like this anymore, kind of for the better. And uh, but I'm just a big Burgess fan because he did A Clockwork Orange, which is a book that changed my life when I was 15, and I still. Uh, like it's still like is very close to me to the point yeah. I can't watch the movie. I am I am of the opinion that it's not just better than the movie, but it's much much better than the movie. The movie kind of misses the point. The point. The movie does not <laughs> fucking get it at all. The movie. The book is so ironic and has so much irony on it, and then you put Kubrick's like inherently ironic style on it, and it's just red on red. It stops making any sense. Anyway. Yeah, but uh, yeah, um, 
Uh, this was the early early burn stuff, which I kind of lean towards. It's he had like 15 books come out in like five years, something crazy. And um, my other book that I've recommend is Burning Grass by Cyprian Quincy. He was one of the uh, authors of part of the African literature movement in the 50s and 60s. And Burning Grass uh, is one of the, I think his third or fourth, it's kind of along those lines. It's, uh, uh, I don't think it's as good as People of the City, but still a very good book. His books are quick reads. And uh, if you uh, and if you want to buy them, because uh, they're not on Kindle or anything, guess what? They're cheap. And uh, go to used bookstores. Go to uh, eBay. You know, like they are available. They're not impossible to find. And there are a lot of African novels from the fifties and sixties that need to be uh, like rediscovered. And I, I would love to see like adaptations of them. Not by Hollywood, but like by like you know, African directors or whatever. But uh, yeah, Burning Grass. It's a really it's a great read. Cool. I got nothing. So okay. Yeah, I'm sure there's. Yeah, I'm sure there's some Twilight Zones from this year that I love that I didn't bother going through. Uh, those. Anyway, so um, this will come out maybe a week from now. But um, so, Chris, first, thank you for your time. Absolutely, thank you for having me on. And you'll be back for a couple more. Uh, I think the next one is Pierre. Pierre LeFou. Yes. Pierre goes crazy. Pierre the Wild Man. Yeah, which. Uh, yeah, that'll be that'll be a fun one. Uh, Godard is always interesting to talk about, even if it's oh fuck, we have two or three things coming up soon. I have to rewatch. That. Yeah, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to see how I feel about it now. Uh, well, Randall's gonna be on it, so you're you're yeah. Uh, we actually have to talk to Randall about it exact day, but uh, yeah, that was com- uh, but uh, yeah. So Chris, what's coming out of uh, Pink Smoke Wise? Around uh, November, December. I do not know off the top of my head. We record all of our stuff as as seasons and then time capsule release it. And I just don't know what we got coming out. We got a Daniel Craig Bond episode coming out. We got a we talked about this novel generation loss. We have an Italo Calvino uh, slash uh harlan ellison episode and uh one with john arminio and a special guest um but i'm not sure what what order those things are coming out oh hold on one second are we are we almost done i just have to let somebody into my apartment real quick my yeah yeah. we're basically done okay uh thank you guys for having me on you're welcome cool thank you chris I'm going to run to the to the door and yep. <laughs> let her All in right. now. Have a good night, guys. Yeah, you, you too. too. Stop so recording. So what do you have coming out? Oh, uh, uh, my, God, my brain is tired. Oh, oh, this time, this, uh, when is coming out? I don't it's know. A week. Uh, 
You know nothing. Movies from hell. I'm Stephanie Crawford's busy. So you know, doing movie critic shit. So the the Tron Waters thing is postponed. And uh, that means it will be a weird animation episode. So we're discussing what we're going to talk about. There might be um, uh, Perfect Blue, because Bradley loves that movie. And some Czech animation stuff that I enjoy. But we'll start trying to work out what the details will be exactly. I don't know when that's coming out. It's Bradley and Blues from Hell. They're sporadic. With their release schedule, yeah, no, that's gonna be that's gonna be like the the one that's gonna be coming out soon, like us, arbitrary, indiscriminate movie podcast. I mean, as soon as I finish the freaking episode, <laughs> the show can be found on Twitter at Piano Player Pod. Our email is still highlowpod at gmail You can find a show on Spotify. Podbean, and various other places where you can find podcasts. Our intro music is by Vivian Fopp, and our cover art is by Sarah Roberts. You can find her art, sarahkathleenroberts.com, and thank you for listening.